All right, so we are continuing our study, obviously, of Genesis 1 to 11. We've been doing this big study of the beginning of a biblical anthropology, and we've made our way down to the end of chapter 2, where uh, we start to get into man's relationships. Let me give you a little bit of a review, a high-level review of where we've gone, and then we'll get into our topic for the, for the day. And I'm pretty excited about launching into what is going to be, I think, a pretty expansive time for us. Um, and I'll give you some reasons here in just a minute. But obviously, our biblical anthropology, we've, we've uh, categorized that in a few areas. We've talked about man's creator. We focused on God as man's creator, as being both transcendent and imminent, separate from, altogether different than his creation, but yet imminent, involved with, intimate with, uh, caring for uh, his creation. We talked about man's formation. We looked at the different methods and materials that were used in creating man and woman and uh, talked about how God is uh, uh, shown as a craftsman in the formation of man from the dust of the earth and, and is shown as a builder in constructing woman from the side of Adam. And uh, obviously a, a, a clear distinction from, from the naturalistic evolutionary model that we have uh, in our secular culture. Um, there's no hint of that, no indication of that. And again, going back to the things that we talked about at the beginning of our study, you really have to do some crazy things with the text of Scripture to make any kind of evolutionary model fit in any way with Genesis 1 and 2. And this is another example of that, pointing to the distinct uh, way that God made man and woman individually and, uh, and distinctly. We talked about man's environment, the man, where, where man was, was located or man, where man was placed. We talked about how this was a real garden of massive scope and scale. We have some geographic references to kind of give us an indication of that in the text. We saw that it was filled with an abundant um, display of God's creative handiwork in creating everything pleasant to the sight and good for food, lush trees and vegetation, tremendous um, water supply with the rivers and this rising water table and a mist that waters us, this perfect climate. Um, no rain had come on the earth, nothing inconsistent like rain where the rain comes and then it might not come and maybe it comes too much or it doesn't come enough in a post, post-fall cursed world where we have to deal with rain either in abundance or not enough and you've got parts of the world that have drought, other parts of the world have flooding. So this is an environment where even the water itself that supplies the garden is in perfect supply, um, perfect balance. And so that's, that's illustrated for us in the text of Scripture. We see that it's an environment in which man is to employ his stewardship of work in that garden. He's to work and to keep it. And that led us to um, looking at man's vocation. We looked at that quite a bit last week. And man, we talked about how uh, that work is a pre-fall blessing, not just a post-fall curse, that the ground has been cursed and that the earth itself, in a sense, fights against us in our work, but that work in and of itself is a blessing from God, and that we as Christians who are called to be reconcilers of others to God, and are, we have a redemptive mission on planet earth, we are to also be redeemers of work. And we talked about how some ways that we can do that, some ideas we can use to do that, um, to make sure that we are, we are redeeming work, we are seeing it as a blessing uh, and not, not just a part of the curse. There is obviously toil from the curse, but that's not the end of it. And Christians have a duty of redeeming work. We looked at some passages of Scripture in the New Testament, uh, in Second Thessalonians, for example, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, 
and there's a, a strong uh, a strong rebuke of, of idleness and, and not being willing to work. Um, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. So there's a practical necessity of work as well. We looked at 1 Timothy 5.8. I talked about how if anyone's not willing to uh, care for their family, their relatives, especially the members of their own household, they've denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. So the statements of the New Testament against those who are not willing to uh, fulfill their Christian duty and also to operate in this world of practical necessity of being those who work and are not idle, um, there is a, a, a rebuke of that person even from the standpoint of, their, of the, the faithfulness and clarity of their Christian testimony. So we are to be those who work, who work to the glory of God, who work hard, who work joyfully, who see work as a blessing. We're not to be characterized by those who see work as just toil and trouble and thorns and thistles, though we do have to deal with that, but we are to be those who redeem that, and even in that environment, even those difficult environments that we might find ourselves in. We do have the reality of working with people who might be difficult to deal with. We have those who we work for that might be uh, somewhat abusive, or maybe they, they, they speak to us in condescending ways, or they don't reward us uh, effectively, or whatever. We have to live in that fallen world in our work, but we are, to, we are called to work in such a way that we recognize that work is a blessing, and that we have a Christian witness responsibility in our work even that is uh, occurring in real time every single day. So we talked about man's vocation in that way. We also talked about man's accountability. And, of course, um, you can look around in man's uh, in, in the text of Scripture in, in Genesis chapter 2 and see that man is accountable to uh, work and keep the garden as a starting point there. But ultimately, that accountability is to God, and it's most poignantly pointed out to us in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2, where God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So the idea of man being accountable to God for his obedience and his submission to God, his full and complete trust in God as his provider and supplier of everything that he needs, is on vivid display there in Genesis chapter 2. We talked a little bit about the, the possible purpose of this, this way of, of establishing a man's accountability that God used. Kind of an odd thing, if you look at it from one vantage point, that God would have one tree in the garden that is pleasant to the sight, as it talks about in Genesis chapter 3. But he says, don't eat from it. And that is in the midst of a garden with all manner of trees that are good for food and pleasant to the sight. And we talked about how this was a means of God both protecting man from the devastating outcome of not trusting him and not trusting his word and, and not believing that he was getting everything that he needed and more, that, that he was not in an abundant environment and, and protecting him from that. But also it was a way of providing for his fullest joy in God and in God alone. So what happens, and this is a foreshadowing to what we're going to find in Genesis chapter 3, but what ends up happening with all of us is that when we begin to look for our deepest joy and satisfaction in something other than our creator, we fall, and we find great devastation in that. So God is gracious in providing this protection at the outset to say, don't eat from this. Find your joy in me. Look around you. See the abundance that I provided for you. Um, and, and find your greatest joy and pleasure in the pleasures that I supply. 
So we see that man is accountable. Man is accountable to that level of trust and submission to God. Uh, We also talked a little bit about man's dominion, and we see this, uh, obviously it's stated very explicitly in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, where you have that that, uh, creation day 6 component there in the Genesis 1 narrative. But you also see it indicated in the naming of the animals that's, that we're going to talk about a little bit more today, but that's in Genesis 2, 18 to 21. And um, just, just as a side note, the, the act of naming the animals and giving them a name is an indication of man's dominion, man's authority, man's sovereignty to be able to name these creatures. And it was obviously invested authority from, from man's creator. But we looked briefly at man's dominion, and we'll talk a little bit more about the naming of the animals and its implications, because that is really just a prelude to man's relationships. This whole naming of the animals is in the context of this introduction of man's relationships. So that's where we're going to find ourselves today. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to really focus in. We're going to kind of do something a little bit, I think, uh, unorthodox in some ways. You know, when you're learning to uh, write papers, um, and even if you have any training in, in speaking, Typically, if you're going to be doing some kind of speech, your introduction, or if you're writing some kind of paper, your introduction generally starts broad, and it begins to gradually narrow down to, you know, your thesis, and then you begin to support your thesis, and then you get to your conclusion, and your conclusion is supposed to go from more narrow to broadening back out to more general, you know, implications and that kind of thing. That's typically the the model that you find. Well, we're going to start narrow, and then we're going to really expand our vision uh, more broadly uh, after today because this really introduces to us the whole um, subject of marriage and family. And so I want to take a little bit of time to start with the text of Genesis chapter 2 and work our way through it, make some key observations from it, and then broaden our discussion and our view to marriage and family as it's, as it's communicated to us in Scripture because really when you look at even going to the New Testament and you look at the key passages on marriage and family, invariably you'll find references back to Genesis anyway. So we're going to expand our view uh, from that vantage point as well and spend a little bit of time where we're going to get outside of the narrow focus of the text of Genesis and we're going to spend a little bit of time just talking about marriage and family and I think that you would find that that's a very important topic that um, is worth us spending some time on and talking about. So we're going to do that over uh, the next couple of weeks. But for today, let's just kind of pick up, instead of reading the whole narrative in Genesis chapter 2 like we had before, we'll just pick up in verse 18 and read down to the end of the chapter because that's going to be our focal uh, text for today. And again, we're starting our discussion on man's relationships as part of this biblical anthropology. So in verse 18 it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made him to a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what I'd like for us to do is just kind of walk through the text. And I've got a little outline here, and it's really just um, starting with what is a common approach to studying Scripture, and that's you start with observation. What do you see in the text? What is just there on the page that's clear? And then we'll draw a few conclusions about some of the implications of it. And then when we get into next week and going forward, we'll be referring back to this text quite often to really give the fuller meaning of this section of Scripture um, and, its, and its greater implications, especially as post-fall uh, New Covenant, New Testament believers in Christ. But first, let's just start with the text itself and make some initial observations. So it starts off with what, I w- uh, what I've called God's initial verdict. What do you see in the text as God's initial verdict when we get to this point? What's his initial verdict there? It's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, is that a contrast or what? Think back to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4, after creating light, and God saw that light was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Chapter 1, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind, and God saw that it was good. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Chapter 1, verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 125, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. All of a sudden you get to chapter 2 and you get to this section in the narrative and something's not good. It's very different. It's a very distinct change, something we should pay attention to. Up to this point, you have this cliche, this worn-out cliche, it's all good. Get to this point, it's not good that man should be alone. So if we come back to verse 26 of chapter 1, you have this divine deliberation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, stop. Now we need to zoom in. Chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then skip down to verse 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, and for the day you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. That's kind of how we get there, right? Everything's going along good, 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 good. God says, Let us make man in our image. Pinnacle of his creation, work. Then we zoom in to chapter 2. Again, chapter 2 is as a zoom in of creation day 6. 
We see the creation of man. We see the, the planting of the garden. We see its abundance and all the things we've talked about before. We see him placing man in the garden, telling him to work and keep it. We get down to this point here where we see that God's verdict at this point is that it's not good. It's not complete, in other words. This is not a term that would say it's not good in that it's bad. You know, it's not good in that it's evil, but it's not complete. It's not fulfilled. Things are not completely in order yet. And you'll recall, as we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and the, the six-day creation narrative as it just kind of rolled out in succession, what you see there as you keep going through that text, you see this constant moving of God bringing order out of disorder, right? There's chaos, and then he brings order in the forming and moving and shaping and separating and putting things in their place. And so he's calling everything good. It's complete. It's fulfilled. It's where it needs to be. It's how it should look. It's how it should be. Get to this point, and it's not complete. It's, it's not completely good. He says it's not good that man should be alone. Now, why? It's not all good anymore. Why? Right there from the text, what can you, what can you think initially would be a, a, a reason why he would say it's not good? He's alone. And I think, the, I think the ladies in the room should be able to just jump all over this. Man needs help, right? He says, there's, there's not a helper. I, I will make a helper fit for him. That's what he says. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Implication, man needs help, right? Man needs help. Now, this term helper, this is, this is where I think it, it gets a lot more, I think, compelling for us to consider. Um, I, I use that term a little bit, um, you know, coyly for, you know, the fact that man, you know, we're, we're bumbling idiots and we need the help of women to just kind of make sure we can tie our shoes in the morning. But really, this is a much more significant statement that God is making, obviously, that, that this term for help here is what is typically in the Old Testament ascribed to God himself. God as a helper. God as our help. You see this in in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. There's a reference to one of Moses' sons named Eleazar, which means God, our help. You see it again in Deuteronomy 33, 7, 1 Samuel 7, 12, Psalm 20, verse 2. And then a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to, to many of us, Psalm 46, 10. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. There's the word very present help in trouble. So when we think of, of this incompleteness and that God has determined that he needs to make a helper fit for Adam, like unto Adam is the way we could say it as well, that we're not just talking about some menial notion of helper. We are talking about completing the picture here. And if you think of this as being ascribed to God, God being our help, a very present help in time of trouble, then in a sense, this is God completing the picture of his image being born out in man. If we are image bearers of God, then that means that we are to reflect elements of his character and his nature, those that we are able to reflect. 
Obviously, we don't reflect his omniscience and omnipresence and those incommunicable attributes, but his grace and his love and his kindness and his generosity and his help to others. So this is a way of completing even that very picture of us being image bearers of God. So yes, in a practical sense, what we see here is that that man does need help. I mean, think about what the, the calling is here. This massive garden... All of this vegetation, all of the, the, everything that constitutes the animal kingdom and all that God had created, and man has been set out to be the worker and the keeper of it all. So there's a practical implication here that, that man is going to need practical help in this enterprise. And in fact, what we know for sure is that man's not just going to need woman to help him, that he's going to need offspring, right? I mean, he's going to need to build a society here. But there's also a deeper implication here in that this goes to what it means for man to bear the image of God. Man in and of himself is not able to bring help in this way, to demonstrate the help that God demonstrates. And so this is a way of bringing that completion to bear and bringing it to pass. But notice here, so you have God's initial verdict. It's not good. I will make a helper fit for him, a helper as like unto him. But he, he do, he, God does this in a very interesting way. I mean, he, he sets this, this magnificent plan in motion in a very interesting way. He kind of, he kind of sets up a living laboratory. Because what does he do? What does he do next with the animals, right? Brings them before Adam. So he doesn't initially go to Adam and say, listen, buddy, you're toast if I don't do something here. Which he could have. You, you cannot do this by yourself. This is going to be way too big of a task. Um, he doesn't do that. He basically uses a living laboratory to allow Adam to see in his creation that there's something missing, that he is not complete yet. There's this, there's this beautiful picture of God shepherding Adam from where he was and what he knew and what he could understand at that point to understanding something much more deep and much more profound. And as we get to the end of the text, you see, he, he gets it, right? I mean, he, he doesn't just see, oh, cool, I've got someone to help me keep the garden. That's not his response that we'll get to at the end, right? So this amazing approach, this amazing picture that we have here of God using what I just have termed this living laboratory because he says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, this is what he says right after he says, it's not good that he should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. He doesn't go immediately and start making a helper. He brings all the animals to Adam. And guys, this is not, I mean, there's, there's been all kinds of, you know, um, sort of scoffing kinds of literature written about this and how uh, God thought maybe, Maybe one of the animals could be a fit helper. Let me try that first. Right? This is not a trial and error exercise on the part of God. He's already determined, I will make a helper as like unto him, as fit for him. But it's, it, this, there's a shepherding and a, almost a discipling enterprise that's being undertaken here by God. And again, we talked about this and how Genesis chapter 2 really puts on display not just God as transcendent creator, but God is imminent, involved in his creation in a loving, personal kind of way when he's creating man and placing him in the garden and 
setting him to work and then putting him in relationship. So we see this living laboratory, and, and Adam obviously is, the, the, the state of Adam at this point is, we can't even really imagine it, but um, imagine a mind that is completely uncluttered by sin, confusion, uh, human fatigue, and all the things that are associated with the curse and the fall. You have a man who has perfect intellect, uncluttered, a, a physical specimen of strength, brilliance, intelligence. And so this naming of the animals was probably this amazing display of that intelligence. There's no sort of like, uh, zebra. No, no, not zebra. You'll be zebra and you'll be kangaroo. I mean, there's no like, you know, stuttering with this. Just this amazing movement as this parade of animals pass by. Obviously, we, we say too much and we start speculating. I, I don't know what it looked like. But clearly, you know that the effects of the fall have affected us in many, many ways, physiologically, intellectually, just our overall capacities that he was not encumbered by. And so, surely he's, he's seeing the animals as he's naming them, and he's seeing them male and female. He's seeing, you know, compatibility there. And he comes to the recognition that there was not a helper fit for him. He comes to that awareness on his own. And so in this intimate relationship, this, this fellowship, again, we're seeing on display this desire and purposefulness of God to have fellowship with his created man. He, he's not just wanting to kind of set him up to kind of take care of what he made and, and kind of flee the scene. There's this involvement in the process. So you see man recognizing that there's not a helper fit for him. And so we go to see how now God is going to complete this work in verses 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And again, we talked about this when we talked about the formation of man. This is probably more like the side of man. It's a better translation of the term there not just a rib bone that was just, you know, kind of isolatedly taken out, more like the side of man, uh, comprised of flesh and bone and blood. And, and woman was built out of man, out of the flesh, the living flesh of man. Yes? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm inferring that from the context. I mean, you know, in other words, the, the, it's like on bookends, you see that God makes this statement that I, I, he sh- it's not good that he should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then you have the context of the animals being brought before him, and the bookend on the, fo- on the back end of it is there was not a suitable helper found for him. So to me, by, I mean, it doesn't say that explicitly, but it seems to be the implication of the context of the overall section there. Yeah, because it's not like it's not like that that it's not like that um, 
while that's a, that is a, a demonstration or an illustration of man's dominion decree, um, there's nothing that carries forward. You know, there's no sort of like reference back to this as a big sort of, you know, uh, scientific event and naming all the members of the animal, all the you know, families and species and all that. That's not what the point is at all. So um, it seems to me that in the narrative, it's to, it's to illustrate this, this work of God in relationship with man and really to put a special emphasis on what is happening here. This is very, very different, much more distinct, much more profound than vegetation or the celestial bodies. This is, this is huge. This is putting man into relationship. This becomes the building block of civilization. This becomes the foundation of human civilization and propagating the image of God on the earth. So this is significant. So that's why I, I kind of feel like that, that there's got to be more going on there than just these animals need names. Because those names don't even carry. We don't know, we don't know what the language was. And that's another interesting point here is that clearly there's communicable language in play here. So, you know, this idea of, you know, the evolution of man and the development of language, you know, man being, you know, uh, primitive and unable to communicate and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Scripture just completely, everything in here just says that's not how it went. So that's just another example of that as well. So God completes his work in this divine surgery uh, that he performs. Um, A lot of, obviously, um, um, meaningful imagery there. uh, That that woman is a part of man. It comes out of man. Man comes from the dust of the ground. Woman comes out of man. And we're going to talk about that further. There's references in the New Testament back to this very point um, in talking about uh, the relationship of man and woman in marriage. So God completes this work here in verses 21 to 22 by causing a deep sleep, taking a portion of his side, closing it up, creating woman, and bringing her to the man. So you have this idea of this presentation of of the woman to Adam. Now this, to me, when you see man's affirmation, that also says to me that there was this process of of building up in Adam's understanding what's, what's taking place here. Um, we, we are looking at this, you know, from our vantage point, looking back on it, but this is, you know, Adam's, this is real time for him. So there's this, there's this instructive buildup to this point. And we see man's affirmation of this whole process uh, uh, here in verse, starting in verse 23. Then man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there's an indication there that Adam knew before God caused him to go into a deep sleep. He knew what was going to happen, right? I mean, how else would he know that? So God is, is instructing Adam all along the way in this process so that he understands the significance of, of what's happening here. And, of course, this affirmation indicates that he, he understands it, that God has, God has created this woman for me as, as a completion, as a helpmate that completes me, um, that brings about the fullness of God's image in man. And he affirms that. He affirms his understanding of that. 
flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And this now, this now is a common term that we use for, for family relation, right? I mean, you're my flesh and blood. You're my flesh and bone, right? I mean, there's, there's Old Testament ref- other Old Testament references to that as well. Common, common understanding. So Adam affirms what God has done by, and, and really this is a poetic, uh, this is the first love song. Um, John MacArthur calls it the first love song in his sermon on this, te- on this section. This is, this is a poetic uh, little sentence here. Um, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that term for woman and man are similar sounding terms, but they're not taken from the same root. So they're just used poetically there to, to uh, refer to woman and man um, in a sort of a poetic, um, affectionate kind of oneness sense here. But then you have God's confirmation. And this is where we get to the, the first marriage, the first understanding of the building of a home and a family in the context of marriage. Verse uh, 24 and 25 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. You have God confirming in a, a statement of marital oneness, this, this creation of man and woman to be in a marriage relationship, to be the foundation of human society and human civilization as part of his divine purpose. God confirms it in this statement, this marriage statement. And you notice that there is this commitment of the man to the woman in that he is to leave his father and mother. In other words, there's this idea of covenant here, that man has a sort of a covenant blood relationship with his family. That transitions to a covenant blood, one flesh relationship with his wife. There's a transition there. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the implications for that for us practically when it comes to just marriage relationships. And I'll give you a hint. If your parents are too involved in your marriage, then that's, that's a problem, not just practically, but it kind of fights against what God designed in his original intent for marriage. Okay, So just some implications there that we'll talk about going forward. But you have God's confirmation in this, this new covenant relationship that he's sort of affirming or confirming and looking forward in terms of how that's going to come about as, as marriage becomes the building block of society in, in man's history going forward, man's development going forward, I should say. And then it has this statement, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, think about this. This is not just because they, were, they had perfect bodies, okay? This is not just a statement about, well, you know, of course they were naked, and of course they were. I mean, you know, it was like before the fall, they were probably, I mean, he was an Adonis-like creature, yeah. I mean, I would be too, kind of thing. The point here, the idea here, is just the complete absence of any hint of sin. In other words, it's, they're not even aware or conscious of anything to be ashamed of or shame, shameful of some, towards someone else or none of that. It's just there's nothing in, that, in, in their minds, in their hearts, that would bring about any hint of shame or guilt or any of that. It's just this perfect... Um, this perfect awareness of the beauty of God's creation and the complementary nature 
of man and woman in marriage. Um, it also speaks to the absolute vulnerability in marriage, in the marriage relationship that's, that's existent. And it speaks to, we've talked about this, we talked about this last week and we talked about it a little bit today about redeeming work. Well, we, we have, we, um, we experience our marriage relationships, our family relationships in a post-fall environment, of course. But as Christians, we're called to be redeeming things. And, and when we look at the, this particular confirmation of God in, in the context of marriage, that is the ideal to which we are seeking to redeem marriage relationships, where there's not shame, there's not shaming of one another, there's not being ashamed before one another. I mean, when you start really unpeeling that onion and unpacking that, there's tons of implications for just the practical nature of interaction and communication and relationship in marriage. For us to be, as Christians, in, in healthy Christian marriages, to function in an environment where there is no shame and no shaming presents to us tremendous responsibility and obligation for how we function in that relationship. The kinds of character qualities and communication practices that we exhibit, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're going to be able to kind of look at just by acknowledging that the ideal, pre-fall ideal of marriage is it to be an environment where there is no shame. There is no shaming and no shame. And, and by God's grace and power, we are to be seeking to redeem that through our own personal sanctification and through the sanctification and cleansing holiness of our home and our family and our marriage relationships and on and on it goes. Again, talk about that much more as we go forward. But we have this great confirmation of God on this new marriage and family, this cornerstone of, of human society, of human civilization. Then... Now we can get back to God's final verdict. We have to jump back to Genesis chapter 1 to see that, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's your final verdict. Now it's complete. God has, God has made a, a suitable helper, someone who is compatible in fellowship and in relationship, in perfect union, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So I, I really like um, when I come across things that help us think about this pre-fall ideal and, and what it means for us as post-fall yet redeemed Christians to view this kind of narrative, to, to think about it from a New Testament, New Covenant Christian perspective. So I, this is from um, uh, Henry Morris's book, um, The Genesis Record, I think is the title of the book, Genesis Record. He says, um, and this is just kind of a summary of, of this section here. He says, instead of what some have regarded as a childish, unscientific myth, 
pointing out that man does not have one less rib than woman and ignoring the fact that even if this were an actual rib, such acquired characteristics are never inherited. This narrative is beautifully realistic and meaningful. In what sense did the Lord God take one of Adam's sides? A side would include both flesh and bone, as well as blood, released from the open side. Adam could later say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Physiologically, it is significant that both bone and flesh in the human body are sustained by blood and the marvelous blood-pumping circulatory network designed by God. The blood carries the necessary oxygen and other chemicals from the air and the food taken in by man to maintain all the substance and functions of the body. In fact, the very life of the flesh, literally soul of the flesh, is in the blood. That's from Genesis 9, 4 and Leviticus 17, 11. These thoughts, of course, immediately remind us again of the one whose side was pierced on Calvary as he entered the deep sleep of death and whose body, not a bone, was broken, but from whose side forthwith came there out blood and water. From the life of Adam, the blood sustaining his bones and flesh, God made Eve his bride. In like manner, we who constitute the bride of Christ have received life by his blood. Thereby, we become members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Eve was thus made from Adam's side to work alongside him in the carrying out of the divine commission to fill the earth and to subdue it. She not only had the same flesh and life as did Adam, but she also had an eternal spirit as he did. But the spirit, or better, the image of God, was directly from God, not mediated through Adam, as was her physical life. This we know from Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. The image of God, directly created by God, was given to both man and woman. As joined unto the Lord, however, even in this dimension of life, they would become one spirit. Similarly, although all the descendants of Adam and Eve have inherited their physical and mental characteristics by genetic transmission, yet each individual has an eternal spirit directly from God and thus himself is capable of personal fellowship with God. It is God who formeth the spirit of man within him, Zechariah 12.1, and to whose disposal each man's spirit returns, Ecclesiastes 12.7, when his body returns to dust. When Adam awoke from his deep sleep, and when God had finished forming Eve, he brought her unto the man to be with him from that time forth. In like manner, God is now forming a bride for Christ, as it were, building up the body. When When this work is finished, God will bring his bride to the Lord Jesus, and he will go to meet her, and she will be evermore joined to the Lord. So just a little bit of imagery there to kind of help us think about the fact that, that uh, this is a, this, and, and when we look at Ephesians, what do we see in Ephesians? Uh, when it talks about marriage, it talks about this is about the body of Christ. This is about Christ's relationship with the church and all that. So we'll look at that in more detail as we go forward, but, but this is going to be a great, I think, a great study for us to really see what Scripture tells us about marriage and family and home and how we need to be about redeeming that for the glory of God. Let's pray.